was renamed Israel, and Israel means wrestling one. That's what we sang in our confessional song of just the days coming when the wrestling ones are done wrestling with sin and with sorrow. And what we're going to look at this morning in the text that's before us is a couple households that get to be set free in a certain way of something they've wrestled with, something they, that brought sorrow. And I'm excited to look at it with you. Uh, the passage, these verses, verse 5 through 17 of Matthew 8, if you're visiting with us, we've been going through this, the, the Gospel of Matthew. We finished the Sermon on the Mount a few weeks ago, and now we're looking at little stories. So we see some stories stacked up here about Jesus. And ultimately, I think these stories, as they stack for us, they reveal to us kind of the, the essence of Christianity. At the most basic level, that's what I hope you'll feel and see today, is that this is Christianity. For example, in the first story, we're going to see the power of the Word of God that must be believed with faith. Then in the next story, we see the compassionate mercy of the Son of God that it warrants a response of service. Peter's mother-in-law is going to serve right away as soon as she's healed. Right, so you have the word that must be believed and you have the compassionate kingdom that intersects our lives that's worthy of a response. This is the essence of Christianity. And as we read it, here's my request this morning. Listen for the description of different characters that are going to be read to you. Some characters have a robust description. We learn a lot about them. We can imagine what they're going through. We know what they do for a living, for example. And then other Individuals we know next to nothing. But they're major players in the story. They experience incredible things. At the end of the text, we're going to see a crowd of people. They're not named. We don't know anything about them. But we know how they suffer. And so as I read this passage, I want you to just listen. Is there someone in the text that you resonate with? It shouldn't be Jesus in this text. For Jesus is the one who engages the lives of people in this scene, in these scenes that are a lot like us. So, so just listen for that. So let me ask you to stand if you would, and I'll read from Matthew 8, 5 through 17. This is the word of God. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever and he touched her hand and the fever left her. She rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and he healed all who were sick. 
This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is the word of God. God. Father, we ask that you'd help us to experience the essence and the ethos of you and your kingdom that's presented in this passage in our lives. And I pray that you would help us to trust the Spirit's power to apply it uniquely to each of our own homes, as this is about a couple different homes. And would your kingdom come to earth as is in heaven in our homes? And will you receive the glory due? And would we trust in the power of your word to accomplish much? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So there's sort of a pivot in verse 5 where we actually transition to a different place. Jesus goes down from the, sea of the, the, the hillside of the Sea of Galilee. He makes his way to Capernaum. Capernaum is like his earthly headquarters. Jesus is now in the place where he's going to set up his kingdom on earth in his public ministry. And right as he does, it's important for us to see that an outsider goes to him. Kind of like the leper went to him. The leper would be an outcast. Now we have an outsider, a Gentile of the nations that comes forward to Jesus. This is a man described as a centurion. What we need to know for now is this is a very powerful man in the small place of Capernaum. A centurion would be a leader of a garrison of a hundred or so Roman soldiers. He would be wealthy. He'd be well taken care of by Rome. He'd be positioned with authority. Only the most talented soldiers would be considered to be worthy of a centurion status. And he was kind of the backbone of Roman rule across all of Israel. In fact, if we think about it, I think correctly, we need to understand this man is a unique individual to intersect Jesus for this needed miracle because he would be representative of the alien rule of Rome there in Judea, right? So this is a German troop, right, in different communities in World War II that wasn't invited, didn't want to be there, but has an authority because of the powers at play. Now, the man we meet, though, he's not ruthless, doesn't seem angry, doesn't seem pompous. In fact, the man we meet, he, he may have power, but he's a caring man. You can almost say that he steps out of his lane of rigid authority and he, he pleads to Jesus, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home and suffering terribly. In Luke's account of this, in Luke 7, we read that this paralytic is suffering and at the point of death. I think it's important. Whenever doing ministry to someone who has something chronic, could be on their deathbed, and the question I want to know is, are they in pain? Right? It's one thing to be ill and sick. It's another thing to know, are they also suffering terribly in the, pain, in the position that they're in? And, and we have this servant, I mean, this man, tell G Jesus, my servant is not just paralyzed, but suffering terribly. Luke says, at the point of death. Now, his concern is of interest I didn't know till this week that a centurion would not be allowed to marry while in the post that the government had placed him. Therefore, his household servants were probably the closest thing he had to family. So this could be like a chief servant. This could be the chief operations officer of kind of the compound that he runs. It very well could be his, his very closest friend. He goes to Jesus and he just pleads. He doesn't send another servant. 
He, he sheds himself of his decorum and he intercedes for his servant with humanity as well as with humility. We see his humility when Jesus says, I will come, I'll come and I'll heal him. And the man quickly retorts back, no, I'm not worthy for you to come. That should stand out to us. What, what did he mean by I'm not worthy? I think two things probably were at play here. First, in part, this man knew the law of Israel. As a Gentile, even though he lived among God's people, for a Jew to come into his home was to make that individual unclean by means of both custom as well as law. Right? Just think of Acts chapter 10. Peter was supposed to go to Cornelius' house. But Peter knew that if I go to Cornelius' house, the going is going to make me unclean ritually. And that was a lesson Peter needed to learn about the gospel being for all the nations. So now we're well before that time, but you have the same thing at play here. Now we also know that Jesus has just touched a leper and did not become unclean. So Jesus is probably not too concerned about uncleanliness, ritually speaking, in this Gentile man's home. But it's important for us to see the man's humility. He respects that quandary that Jesus might be in. You don't have to come to my house. I'm not worthy of you to come. That would position you awkwardly as unclean. So that could be one thing that's going on. But I think the other thing is just this is a man who understands authority. And this man knows very well that he is unworthy compared to the worth and glory of the one standing before him. The contrast is visible. Again, I'm going to go to Luke chapter 7 to kind of do a parallel scene. It's the same story, different gospel Luke's amazing in how he describes it. It's different. Here's what Luke says. Luke says that as the centurion went and talked to Jesus, the people in the crowd spoke up and they pleaded with Jesus and they said, he is worthy to have you do this for him because he loves our nation and he's the one that built us our synagogue. So in whatever way, shape, either he is a builder or he paved the way for the building to happen. He's a friend of Israel. And the crowd looks to Jesus and says, if anybody's worthy for you to do this for him, it's this guy. And yet his countenance is, I'm not worthy for you to sacrifice and come into my home. Let me call time out and pause. Just bracket this off from the rest of our sermon. I think, Christian, this is something that we should feel in our lives if the testimony of integrity, of excellence, of kindness, of generosity, of repentance, of restoration. If that is lived out in our lives the way I believe the scriptures say it should be, there, there will be people that look, to, look at you and say, that's a good man right there. That's a great woman. They're worthy of the promotion. They're worthy of this. They're worthy of that. And yet the countenance of a believer who understands what sin is and how we're not holy like we ought be and how we're unworthy compared to the holy demand of the law of God, we should have this narrative running inside of us, which is, I'm not worthy of anything but the wrath of God, which was taken from me at the cross of Jesus. So this dilemma of worth perceived by outsiders and lack of worth is a beautiful, I think, Christian dilemma that we should have a little bit of experience with in our lives. Well, the man's humility really comes out in the fact that he sees the glory gap between he and Jesus, and that glory gap is only observed by means of great faith. And so he's a man of great faith, and that's really what stands out to us. He says, I'm unworthy for you to come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. 
Jesus, just say the word. I believe in the power of your word. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. My word has power. He knows that. I say to a servant, go, the servant goes. Come and they come. You have an infinitely greater word of power. If you want to say to paralysis to go away, it will go. You want to say to demons to get out, they will get out. You say to disease, never come back, it will never come back. This man has tremendous faith. And, and maybe you're familiar with this story. Sometimes for me, when I turn my Bible and read the next story, and it's a familiar one like this, I think I know what's there. And every once in a while, a word jumps off the page and like, wait a second. This is one of those scenes. There's a word that might stand out to you. Notice what he says. He does not say, Jesus, I have authority and people do what I say. So I know you have authority so you can do this. That's not what he says. He says this, Jesus, I too am under authority. I have authority over me. There's a direct chain of command that starts with the emperor of Rome and it works its way down to me in Capernaum and those who are under me do what I say just as I do what those above me have said. What is he implying about Jesus? He's implying that he believes at some level that Jesus also is under the sending authority of God the Father. He understands that Jesus has authority because of the authority entrusted to him. This is a, a Gentile, an outsider among the nations, and you have by inference at least that he believes that Jesus has been sent by God the Father to fulfill the purpose that God the Father has designed and that Jesus is obeying the orders of his Father in all that he does. So therefore, if Jesus speaks a word of healing, it will be with the authority of the Father's endorsement. It's quite amazing. It's so amazing. The, te the text actually says, Jesus marveled when he heard this. It's pretty crazy. Just six or eight verses ago, it's the crowd that's astonished at Jesus, right? In the last two verses of chapter seven, they were astonished when they saw and heard him teach the way he did. And now fast forward, Jesus is astonished at the faith of this Gentile man among the nations. In fact, this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is said to marvel at one of his disciples' faith. And he doesn't just marvel at it. He pulls it out and sets it up for the crowd watching and says, this is the model of what faith in God's word should look like. He says, I tell you, many from the east and the west are going to come. They will recline at the kingdom of heaven if they have the faith like this man has. So Jesus basically starts to teach. He takes a teaching moment. He's going back to Genesis chapter 12 and the promise given to Abraham that by means of God's faithfulness to his people, all the nations are going to be blessed. And here's a man among the nations right there in Capernaum, blessed because the promise of God is being fulfilled in Jesus. This is the kind of promise in Isaiah 25. Let me just quote Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of well-aged wine, well-refined. And God will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the people, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. 
The Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of the people he will take away from all the earth. And here you have a man of the nations from all the peoples of the earth that God has brought there to Capernaum. And Jesus says, you're going to feast with me. You're going to feast in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are experiencing by faith all that God ever promised to the people he would rescue. But, and here's where he does a teaching moment, there are many sons of the kingdom. And think of that description. There are many Bible Belt Christians or whatever description you want to have. Nominal believers who grew up in the church. Many Sunday school teachers. Those who look at themselves and say, I have worth because of how well I've done inside of the kingdom of God. I'm a son or daughter of the kingdom. Jesus says there's going to be many who don't have any of the dependent faith that this man has, who don't think of themselves as unworthy. Therefore, they don't claim the things given to them by the son when he comes in his kingdom in full, who are going to be sent to the place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus takes this miracle to teach and say, there are those who are going to know his kingdom forever and there are those who are going to be cast into hell forever. He teaches on that right here. It's bold. Then he transitions in verse 13, when the text does, from the teaching moment back to the actual miracle. And we read that it happened just like that. In that moment or in that hour, the servant back at the centurion's house is healed because of the word of Jesus. In fact, look how Jesus says it. Go, let it be as you have believed. Isn't that amazing? The, Jesus is positioning this man's faith as, the, as the, the fulcrum or whatever you would say that tipped toward healing. The man believed Jesus could do what he said he would do, that he was who God's word said he would be. I want to ask you to think about your life are there things that you struggle to believe, but they've been told to you in God's word, such as your sins are fully forgiven and you are righteous in God's sight, such as there's no longer any shame and distance between you and your God because of what Jesus endured on his cross. And you need to hear what Jesus said to the centurion and be told today, let it be for you just as you believed. Which means you better have confidence in what the, God, the promises of God's word say and believe with the hope Required, just like this man did. He healed him with a word, not with an incantation, not with a magic dance, not with holy water. He just spoke and it happened because standing before this man, as we saw last week, was the word. In the beginning, the word was with God. The word was God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And this man knew that without the word of Jesus, my servant will not be healed. And the Bible says without the word of Jesus, creation doesn't happen. And this man believed that. So, so if we step back a little bit and look at chapter 8, here's what we have so far. An outcast who's a leper has been healed and restored to community. Next scene, an outsider of the nations experiences healing in his home because of his humble, dependent faith. And the parallel of both of those two individuals is they both threw themselves headlong at Jesus with desperation and they had a marvelous faith. And so here's my question to us. Is this marvelous to you? Like, like this sort of desperate, humble faith. I mean, think of the identity effect of it. This man is not known for the centuries 
the millennia that follow among the people of God who have the word of God as a great centurion who built a synagogue in Capernaum. That's not his identity. His identity is as a man of faith who would feast in the kingdom of God forever because of his faith. It's marvelous. And so I want you to, back to the question before we read, who do you relate to in this story? Let me ask you these questions. Do you relate to such desperate faith for God to do something in your life and in your home? Can you re relate to this? Do you have faith that does a couple of things? First of all, it goes and pleads to God to do something without God doing it. You know it can't be done. Like forgive you of sins. Like convert the heart of people you love. Like give you security in a world of insecurity. Do you plead with God? Secondarily, do you plead knowing that you're not worthy of him to answer your requests? Well, then there's a whole other way to think about this. Do you realize there are beneficiaries to your faith? Just like there was a servant that never got to hear Jesus' voice, never saw the crowd swell because that servant was paralyzed, and that servant is the beneficiary of this centurion's faith. That servant will never know this man as a great centurion and Roman soldier. That servant will only know this man as a great master who had great faith in a greater God. I want you to think about this beneficiary thought. I don't know if you listen to our podcasts. If you do, you're one of few. We're happy to have you. But AJ and I have been talking through 2 Samuel. And a, maybe three, four weeks ago, we were on 2 Samuel chapter 17. So allow me to reiterate the story there. In chapter 17, David has just been usurped of his throne in Jerusalem by his wicked son Absalom. And David takes his men and he kind of just kind of weasels his way out of Jerusalem, even though he's supposed to be the rightful king. A bunch of raunch wickedness happens by his son Absalom. But David ends up across the river in hiding. And in 2 Samuel 17, a group of people from across the river, they come and they serve David. It, I, it's one of my favorite texts in 2 Samuel. And I didn't even know it was there till a month ago. I mean, they bring him lentils and beans and beds for his men. And it's just, they set up a camp and it's this amazing feasting for the king and his people. Well, one of the benefactors who brought the lentils and the beans and all the supplies, his name is Barzillai. And we meet him in chapter 17. He's a man in his 80s, and all we know is that he's really wealthy. In chapter 20 of 2 Samuel, when David puts down his son's uprising and he goes back to Jerusalem like the rightful king, David intersects Barzillai at the river before he goes back. And he says to Barzillai, I want you to come with me back to Jerusalem, and I'm going to take care of you for your kindness and generosity in a way you can only dream and this 80-year-old man looks back at King David and says, actually, I've always lived on this side of the river. <laughs> I plan to die on this side of the river. And I'm going to be buried in the family's plot. And I don't want to go with you. But here, here's my servant. Take him and treat him as you would have treated me. And so we meet this servant in 2 Samuel 20 named Chimham. And Chimham has had nothing to do, as far as we can tell, with caring for David. He just happens to be a servant of a wealthy master who was generous. And now Chimham's life is forever different. 
Because for the rest of his days, he's going to be inside the court of David the king with God's righteous king as his master. This is the way of the kingdom, and that's exactly what's on display for us here in this text. A paralyzed servant back at home intersects the kingdom of God through the faith of a master that went out boldly and interceded for him with Jesus. So here's the question to you and me. Who is the beneficiary in your sphere of influence of faith that is desperate and who benefits from your countenance of saying, I'm not worthy, but I go to God for the people he's entrusted to my care? That's what happened in that house. So I think it's wise for us to think about your coworkers. Do they see you as a strategic mind that's coming up with great plans? Or do they see you as a man or woman of faith that they are benefiting from your humility and faith the way these servants benefited from the centurion's transformation? Okay, so we, we have the house of an outsider, but then let's transition. Verse 14, 15. We go into the home of an insider. Now we're in Peter's house. This won't be long. It's just a brief section. But we see that Peter's mother-in-law is lying sick. And I say it's a small fever because it's nothing like the situation with the paralyzed servant that's close to death. And this is a very different section. But before I show you the differences, just a little newsflash. Did you know Peter was married? It kind of puts a little bit of a wrench in the papal system, doesn't it? But he was married. This is his mother-in-law. And nobody in these set of verses asked Jesus to do anything. It doesn't say he healed with a word. He just saw the woman lying there sick and he reached out, he touched her and she was healed. And as soon as she was healed, she got up and started serving. So back to the comment earlier, this passage has the essence of Christianity built into it. What does it look like to trust in the power of God's word and have others benefit from our humble faith? And what does it look like when we've experienced God's mercy and compassion to then get up and serve? Minister to those around us and continue to extend the ripple effect, if you will, of those who benefit from our own transformation. Okay. Here's where I want to land. Our homes. There's two stories right here of Jesus intersecting houses with people in them. May as well give away what the last point is. The last point is there's a bunch of unknown people that show up in a crowd. The crowd's going to show up. And they're a crowd full of people that need miracles. And I'll, I'll mention that more about it in a second. But everybody loves what happens in a crowd. That's what ends up on social media. That's why we knew what happened with a revival at Asbury. Because the crowd showed up and then the crowd showed up to watch the crowd and make sure the crowd was actually experiencing something. Right? And there is something to God doing things in crowds, but here's the thing that we must not miss. Before the crowd showed up, Jesus and his kingdom showed up in two houses. And that's a marvelous thing. And is, is that picture of the kingdom enough for you? Wherever you are in your home, you could be a child in a home. You could be anticipating your own future home with a spouse. You could be in a home. You could be an empty nest home. Is it enough that the kingdom of God comes by means of faith in simple ways through heads of households, into bedrooms, when no one's watching. Like, is that marvelous? Because I think it is. 
And I think sadly, we don't act like it is. We all want the big crowd with the big stage, with the big everything. And we forget that what we're most desperate for is faith, healing, salvation, repentance, restoration, mercy in our houses. The unknown do show up. It's quite amazing what happened in Capernaum. Peter's house ends up collecting all these people. And here's the things that stand out in verse 16. He healed them with a word. There you have it again, just a word. But he healed all who came. Now that's not a common description of Jesus' miracles. Did you know that? Everybody who showed up that night at Peter's house got their healing if they were inflicted by a demon or if they had a sickness. Everybody did. Now, was everybody in Capernaum healed? No. Was everyone in Galilee healed? No. Are all of us healed of every sickness, infirmary, struggle we have in a fallen world fully yet? No. So what do we make of this? Well, it's in verse 17, and it's the same thing we talked about last week. The word from the Father that Jesus was to obey in an unbroken chain of commands was that he was sent to be the substitute for all sin and all sickness and all death for those who believe in him like the centurion did. So the question is whether they were healed that day or they were in Capernaum and wouldn't receive healing but needed the, the kingdom impact and intersection or even after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended to the Father, would they believe that what Jesus actually did in saving he substituted the place of sinners who experienced all of sin's effect in this world and he bore it all on himself so that an eternal kingdom with Christ as king could be known by all of us that doesn't have sickness, doesn't have tears, doesn't have death, doesn't have pain. Would they believe in his substitution? Will you and I believe in his substitution? In the word the Bible gives about him, that's what's quoted in verse 17. It's from Isaiah 53. And would we believe his word just the way the centurion did as having the kind of authority that it has? Here's how I want to close up. There's another centurion in the Gospel of Matthew. If this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry after the Sermon on the Mount, fast forward quite a while, there'll be another centurion that's going to say an amazing statement of faith. It's in Matthew chapter 27. And that centurion was not given a post in Capernaum. He was given a post right next to the cross of Jesus to manage the crowd. And on that day, which was the actual day of substitution, where sin's curse was laid on Jesus, when the earth shook... And darkness descended after Jesus breathed his last breath. That centurion looked up at the cross and he proclaimed with faith. Surely this man was the son of God. Surely this man is everything that their word said he would be. And he's everything that his own word said he would be. And I now can declare who he is. That centurion also believed and gave that declaration.
So Christian, as we take the Lord's Supper, my, my question to you is, do you believe in the power of the word of God like the centurion? Do you believe in the word about God that we have in verse 17 that tells us what the Father sent the Son to do? And if you believe that, then will you believe that everything that's been told to you will come true? Your sins are fully forgiven. Your shame has been replaced. His righteousness is already credited to you. And you will only know a kingdom of blessing forever by faith. So as you partake the Lord's Supper, would you trust in that together like the centurion? Let me pray. Father, thank you for this scene, for the visual of the, benefact, the, 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 the beneficiaries of the centurion's faith. Would you give us pause to think about those who are looking to us? What do they see? What is our reputation in their eyes? Are we humble and contrite and full of faith? Would you use this text to expose us to ourselves even as we've been exposed again to who you are, Jesus, and what faith looks like? You have all authority. Your word is power. You're the word at creation and you are our word in whom we trust for our salvation. Bless us now as we take the Lord's Supper. Would you give us renewed faith? In Christ's name I pray, amen.